Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's installment of the Rocky Mountain Myrex Short Takes on Suicide Prevention podcast. I'm your host, Adam Hoffberg, and I'm really excited. Today, we have Dr. Ted Bonar joining us today. And Ted is obviously joining us remotely during this uh, COVID era, but uh, I'm so glad you could be on with us today. Welcome, Ted. Hey, thanks very much. Really glad to be here. Great. Ted, as we always do, let's get a little bit of information on you. I understand you're an independent clinical psychologist and have a passion for uh, working with veterans and military to prevent suicide, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, I've been a clinical psychologist see, for the last dozen years or so, and I, I got an interest in working with military and veterans early on. I didn't become a psychologist with an interest in working with military and veterans. It happened a little bit by accident. I was in graduate school in Chicago, and I was on a training, one of my early practicum sites, and I wanted, a, I wanted like the best generalist site that I could find. I wanted a competitive site with great supervisors. And in Chicago, and in a lot of places, but in Chicago, that's a VA. So I was at the West Side VA, Jesse Brown VA Medical Center in Chicago for a year. And it really changed, well, it changed my life. It became clear to me very quickly that this is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to just be a generalist anymore. I wanted to work uh, with military and veterans. There was something about the work that just really connected with me. I left that year knowing that this was the direction that I wanted to pursue. So when I was working with military and veterans, obviously some common concerns would come up. And in the role of a clinical psychologist, I became more experienced and more adept at working with trauma, PTSD, suicide, among many other concerns that a veteran military member might have. But those two areas really struck home with me and became a a focus of my own personal work. And I became an evidence-based provider for PTSD. I'm a prolonged exposure therapist and trainer, an evidence-based provider and trainer for suicide prevention. Wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for all that you do. And I want to turn back to that in just a moment in thinking about how we are uh, going through the the COVID outbreak and epidemic and how that's evolving in terms of suicide prevention care in in this new era. But before we get into that, maybe I wanted to go back even a little bit further. I understand you used to be a musician and made this transition into being a a clinical psychologist. Talk to us about that and, and your process. What drove that? Yeah, I look back on 20 and 30 years ago and see, I wonder where I, what other decisions I might have made, but those were the decisions I made. I I was a drummer from a very young age. I was six or seven when I started playing and there was just, that's what I was going to do. I went to music school down in Miami, University of Miami, and I played drums and I was in bands and recorded and toured. And then I worked at record labels and I did that for a good while. I mean, I did a good solid 10, 12 years of that as a professional musician. And and then something happened in the, there was a confluence event and several things happened at once. But in my early 30s, I had the music business is a little fickle and I loved being a musician and it's, it was my passion, 
but it was also just a series of jobs, one after another. I would have this job, I would have that job, I would have this job, I would have that job. And even though I would call it a career, it didn't, it didn't have a mission to it. It didn't have a higher purpose that I would want out of a career. So I, I went into psychology and a lot of people at the time thought, wow, what a change going from music to psychology. It never felt like an abrupt change to me. And the way I think of it now, I didn't know this at the time, but retrospectively, it, it makes sense. And I did feel this. It felt congruent for me. I experienced the world through my ears. As a musician, I listen and respond. I try to work within a band or within a music situation to make something better. When I'm a psychologist and I'm doing clinical work and things are clicking, it fulfills the same part of me. It feels like the same skills where I'm listening and responding, I'm staying steady. If there's a moment, I can capture it. And those ideas felt really congruent for me. And it felt natural from the moment that I did it. It's, and again, I, I don't know if that works for everybody else, but that always made sense to me. It always felt right to me. Um, it, it does influence what I was talking about earlier that where it explains why I wasn't thinking that I wanted to work with veterans because that wasn't in my world. Like so many other clinicians or just civilians in our society, that divide was real. I didn't come from a military family. I hadn't been in the military. They were very much an other group. They were back in the day for me, they were, it was them over there in the Gulf War and it wasn't that visible in my day-to-day -day life. So it wasn't until I walked into the VA where it's like, oh my God, this is such a sudden revelation for me that I want to be part of this culture. I want to be part of this. I, I like to say I want to give something back. That sounds almost trite, and I don't want to give myself that much credit. I don't want to give myself so much credit like that, that I'm going to give something back as if I'm sacrificing something. It's I, I would never want to state it that way, but it was like, it was a discovery at the time and I wanted to connect with it. It is directly related to this journey of my life change from being a musician into finding another way to use the things that I was good at and really enjoyed exploring, learning things generally, and then finding something specific that I was good at, that I wanted to do, that I wanted to pursue, that I wanted to get better at, that I wanted to grow. That still remains true. I still play music and I still want to get better at that and I evolve. And as a psychologist, I, I've never looked at it as though I've graduated and I'm done. When I graduated, and finished my internship and finished my postdoc, there's just a truth here. I was not trained in evidence-based treatments of PTSD or suicide. And I think that's common in our field, in, our, in the mental health profession. I wanted to push myself to learn these things and to get good at them and to be better. I hope that there's more that I'm going to learn, right? It, it, that process that I'm riffing on a little bit, that process felt the same whether I was learning something about how to play music or whether I am learning something new about psychology. They, f they feel like very parallel tracks to me. Ted, I really appreciate your humility there and your drive and your passion to 
contribute and do your part, like you said, the recognizing that as I also am not a veteran and just recognizing that we aren't veterans, but as civilians, we can really still care and, and be passionate about veterans and the military population. On that note, I wanted to talk a little bit more about evidence-based therapies, especially with your expertise there, and then uh, a little bit about how everything is evolving in this new COVID world about how telehealth and telemental health and evidence-based care are, are coming together in this new era. Sure. There's so much. The evidence-based treatments are so important, and we need more of us mental health providers to know it, know them. Can you say uh, that again? That's so important. <laughs> so, we need more of us to know these evidence-based treatments. And our profession, I think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very general here. There is more to say about what I'm about to say. <laughs> but just, just to simplify it, I think that there are two uh, camps in our profession. There's, there's a camp that is research-driven, science-driven, evidence-based, and finding the things that work better. And I don't know if I'm saying that well, but, and then on the other side, and this is not, I'm not disparaging or judging either of these sides. There's a, maybe a more traditional, but a more relational, interpersonal, multicultural, diversity, inclusion, relationship, rapport group of mental health professionals. And I think, this is my experience, is that they're somewhat talking past each other. That, and I want them to talk with each other, and I think that there is value and need for both. I, I was trained psychodynamically, and if I go to some of my conferences, evidence-based conferences that I go to, when I tell people that I was trained as a psychodynamic clinician, like I can get some people giving me the side eye. I have so much gratitude for learning those techniques and procedures, and I still understand people through those theories. And if I am not able to use evidence-based tools to help somebody who is in despair right now in front of me, I don't know that I'm being the best therapist that I can be. I think there needs to be space for a lot of different approaches in our world. And if somebody is in a suicide crisis or has a diagnosable condition of PTSD, I have to know how to help them because they are in despair. And that is a hard conversation for us to have, the hard conversation for we mental health professionals to have because we learn something when we're practicum students or graduate students or on internship, and it means so much to us. And then to challenge ourselves to change that is threatening. And I, I think, and, and I've spoken, you know, this is a, a main topic of conversation that I've had with a lot of people over the years as, a, as I've traveled around the country offering trainings. People are invested in what they know and changing to a new protocol can be really challenging. I really want psychologists, social workers, counselors, any marriage and family therapist, I want any mental health counselor, therapist, to hear the message that there's room for all of it. And I think our best work is to know what to offer and when. That's a complicated question, and research hasn't fully been able to answer that. 
which of course is part of part of the challenge and the question. But we do have things in the world of suicide and PTSD that work better than the technique I was trained in originally. And that's a hard statement, right? I would have to go to, if I were to go to the people that trained me 20 years ago, my mentors, the people that trained me at the VA, and say that, and to say that to them, I'd be saying to my supervisors that they didn't know the best thing. That's a really hard conversation. So it's not personal judgment. Sometimes this is just our experience, right? Sometimes it's I learned it here and I learned it then. We have things now that are different than they were 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. So I think it's incumbent upon us to, you use the word humility, to just say, we don't always know then the right thing to do. And now we have tools that we can pick up. And it doesn't mean we have to throw out all of our, all of our other skills. So Ted, talk to us a little bit about what mental health treatment looks like in this new era of COVID-19. Well, it's been, uh, it was an abrupt shift. In my experience, most of us mental health providers, or I should say many, some experience with telehealth, but not many of us were experts in telehealth. Not many of us focused on it. And then about you know, three weeks ago, we all became, we became telehealth providers, 100% telehealth providers, literally in a weekend. For me, it was over a weekend. For some people, it was over a week. And that was an abrupt shift, both for providers and for clients, I think. The VA has done such a good job with telehealth. I think that they were probably ahead of the curve in getting people up to speed. But of course, the majority of services at the VA are still not telehealth. So I would imagine that for providers, even in the VA system, providers probably had a leg up on most providers, um, but it still would have been an abrupt shift. In a very short amount of time, we've had to come up to speed on technology, HIPAA compliance, informed consent, What's the platform? How do you communicate with your clients? How do you get what happens if they're not interested in continuing services? Acute care risk. What are contingency plans if there's a crisis? All of these things happen so fast. Previous to this, like I said, we may have, I'll speak for me, I offered it periodically to specific clients that needed continued care when we, and, and that was the way we could continue to do it, to offer 100% telehealth services. It really upends so much about what we do as therapists. Some therapy is very conducive. It's really well suited for telehealth. Very specific cognitive behavioral protocols, exercises, tasks, homework, to-do lists, some people doing that kind of work don't skip a beat, but there are so many other aspects of just a general therapy relationship, rapport, alliance, uh, interpersonal communication, body language. It's not that you can't do it over telehealth, but it's an abrupt, it's an abrupt shift. I guess I keep coming back to that. So I think that we're all learning on the job right now. I think that most people are probably doing a pretty good job with it. That's my sense in talking with a lot of people. 
but it's a learning experience and it's a learning experience for clients as well. The content of sessions has been different. Obviously, it's been focused quite a bit on COVID-19, anxiety, stress, concerns, concern of family members. People might be working directly with people who have the virus. Some clients might have the virus themselves. That obviously would shift. You might have been working on something very different in therapy, and now this is going to come into play and change so much about what uh, you might have been doing. Similarly, it may you may have been focused on something in therapy that you now have to change, even from cognitive behavioral perspectives or trying to get trying to encourage behavioral activation to have somebody be more social or go out and, and do things outside of the house. I think everybody is being forced to be even more creative within this new paradigm when some people can't leave. It's not a great idea to leave. We Social distancing is a little antithetical to encouraging in-person, interpersonal social interaction. So it's not that you can't do these things, but everybody is, we're stretching our creative muscles here a little bit to move forward. I think the other thing to think about is what happens for suicide prevention. The, the interventions for suicide prevention specifically, those have changed, but they may not change quite as much as general therapy. I suppose I should be careful how I say that. If somebody is in an acute crisis over telehealth, we as therapists do need to be more clear than ever about how we will manage acute crisis. Sending somebody to the hospital, suggesting somebody goes to the hospital, calling 911, and this is in an acute emergency situation that I'm talking about, those decisions are no longer quite as easy as they used to be. And of course, that would be different depending on where somebody lives, what what if somebody is living in the epicenter of uh, an outbreak, emergency services simply may not be as available. There's also more danger. There's the danger that somebody could uh, take themselves to an emergency department and then uh, be exposed to coronavirus. The algorithms, if somebody is in an acute suicidal crisis, the endpoint algorithm can still be the same that we need to get services in place and we need to get somebody connected with emergency care. But I think there are additional steps in the algorithm about who else can help, Is are there other options to help? And those aren't easy decisions because the therapist is at a remove, right? The therapist is at a distance. All the more reason that I think therapists have to be ready to use safety planning intervention or crisis response planning or CAMS care, CAMS protocol. And I think that those protocols are really conducive to being done over telehealth. So while the algorithm for whether somebody gets emergency care, that algorithm is a little bit more complicated. It, I think it's also simplified if we use one of these protocols. That's wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. I, I'd love for you to keep going a, about how you're using safety planning and crisis response planning um, it, with your patients. Yeah, I think that the safety planning and crisis response planning over telehealth 
you might have to be a little bit creative, but I think the creativity can actually enhance the rapport, enhance the collaborative nature of these interventions. One, this is before telehealth, a good safety plan or a good crisis response plan is collaborative in nature. We know that these are effective interventions. The more effective versions of safety planning is the quality of the safety plan. The quality of the safety plan is generally determined by how collaborative it is. So if a therapist is simply filling in boxes into a computer, into a form on behalf of the client, it's, it, it may not have the quality we need it to be, we, we need it to have. I think that using telehealth, we may be able to, it may force us to be more collaborative. So what I'm suggesting is, in a hypothetical safety plan, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna outline the hypothetical safety plan the way we wouldn't want it done in order to make the point. So in person, somebody in an emergency department or in an emergency therapy session it may start to use a safety plan and open up a computer and ask a person, what are their coping strategies? Who are their support people? Who are your emergency resources? And the therapists or, or whoever is doing the, the safety plan simply types the information in rather than making it collaborative. It's question and answer, and you just fill out the form. At that point, the, the patient might feel disconnected from the process. This is just another thing I got to do. And they're coming at it from a place where they feel helpless and hopeless anyway. Might be, in, in other words, that scenario might be going through the motions, as opposed to one of the things that CAMS does really well is, is that the therapist asks if they can sit next to the person. They fill out the form together. If you have that spirit within the safety plan, I think the safety plan becomes better. So if you're talking with somebody about their coping strategies, the therapist might be writing it down, but saying, okay, so I'm writing down, walk my dog after dinner for at least 20 minutes, spend, spend 20 minutes walking my dog might be after dinner or spend, if it's not after dinner, I don't have to wait for dinner. So walk my dog for 20 minutes to get through the acute crisis. Did I write that down correctly? Did I have that? Um, showing it to the client, right? Getting a more specific version of maybe there's a route they like, or maybe they want to not just walk the dog, but walk the dog, bring the tennis ball, make sure to play with the dog, to, something like that, to really clarify and drill down specifically on what that coping strategy might be to get through one specific hard time, right? Now, if that's in telehealth, I don't want to just say, I, I don't want to say through a screen, get the answer, walk the dog. I type in walk the dog onto the safety planning template and leave it at that. I, what I would do is screen share, say I would you know, probably send the document, however I need to do that through email, through a PDF, through whatever format I'm, I'm using. We're going to be looking at it together. So there are now in there are essentially two versions of the safety plan, but we're going to fill it out together. Okay, so if you see line two there, instead of walk the dog, what can we really, what can we make sure that says? What does that mean? Screen share what I'm typing in. Did I get this right? Do I have this correct? Oh no, I think what we need to do is add this piece about the tennis ball. He really loves that. Now think about the emotional investment when a, when 
a client is talking about than his or her love for playing ball with the dog, right? It's not just a, a dog walk, it's emotional time shared with, with the dog that they love and spending time which helps get the, through that acute crisis. Now there's more to safety planning than that. But that's, I'm trying to break down how screen sharing over telehealth can really engage in that emotional connection. When we're creating a safety plan, we're trying to create emotional connection with the things that give people meaning in their lives. It's not just a form for documentation. It's the thing that says, I can get through this 10-minute period. I can get through this hour. I can get through this day. And it's by doing these things. So connecting with the emotional content of the safety plan, that's the goal anyway. So how can we use telehealth to do that. I think screen sharing technology is actually really conducive to making sure that you have the emotional engagement, the collaborative nature of that intervention. Same thing goes with crisis response planning. If you're using the crisis response plan platform, the client is supposed to be filling out a note card. It's with very similar items as the safety plan. But it's, it's, they have, has to be a piece of paper, it's a piece of paper or it's generally on a note card, doesn't really matter. If they're filling out the sections of the crisis response plan in their own hand, then okay, you're helping somebody walk through the steps of how do I know when I'm in trouble? How do I, what do I do in order to manage the stress? What are my coping strategies? Who are my support? Who are, is my support system? They're writing that down in their own hand you then can say, okay, so show that to me through the screen, right? That doesn't have to be that much different than in-person protocol. At the end of it, they can take a picture with it, take a picture, send it to you. You can say, oh, I love how you wrote that one. And you're then looking at it. It doesn't have to be that much different than doing it in person. And these are the effective, these are the things that make those interventions effective anyway. It's collaborative, it's emotional, it has resonance. It's specific, it's detailed. So I don't think that has to be sacrificed just because it's over telehealth. I think that's really an important spirit of those protocols. Yeah, that was really helpful. And I think the example you used drove it home so well because I've actually never heard someone describe it so well in terms of the safety plan or crisis plan helping develop that emotional connection and making sure that that's really the piece, that's that hook that's keeping people hang on and, and like you said, finding meaning. So I, I really appreciate that. And especially that we can, that hope, that message that we can still do this via telehealth and that those fundamentals are still there. Right. Yeah, I appreciate that, Adam. And that's really the practice of it, right? If you look at the form of the safety plan, or if you look at the components of the crisis response plan, it'd be easy to rattle off some quick interventions that would be just general coping strategies, but general coping strategies really aren't enough. They have to be meaningful to the person. They have to be connected. So it's not just listening to music or watching a show. It's what music would you listen to? What music is the most important to you? What gives you hope? What shows give you a laugh? No matter what mood you're in, they can help bring you out of it. Or something with nostalgia or pictures, pictures of family. What pictures? Which ones? Is there a specific one that really 
that brings you good memories or you think about a favorite place that you'd like to be again. That's the emotional resonance. So it's not just look at pictures of my family. It's look at pictures of my kids, their specific, their names, their ages, your partner, a favorite place, a motorcycle ride. Where did you go? What were you on? Where did you, what kind of motorcycle do you ride? Do you, you put every bit of those details is onto the safety plan. And that engenders hope for, I, I can get through this now because I feel a little bit better. And I want to go and do those things and connect with those people again in the future. And all of that, I think, is in the more effective, the most effective safety plans or crisis response plans. Great. I think um, you've done a great job covering how you're helping care and continue to care for clients. But I want to flip that on the other side of the coin. How are we taking care of ourselves and and how Mm -hmm. are clinicians and yourself included really working to prevent the burnout, to to bolster the self-care? I'll tell you what, I, I think that's also a work in pro- progress. This isn't going to be 100%, but so much of therapy sessions over the last several weeks has been stress, ongoing stress and anxiety and worry and adjusting to this new normal. And so if that's true for any one client, and if that's true for most clients, that's true for most sessions that are being conducted by therapists. And I think that therapists are right now vulnerable to, to burnout. And we know how to address burnout. And I think our field can really struggle with, with burnout. We know the ideas, but we don't do a great job at protecting ourselves. Nobody, I, I would doubt that anybody in hypothetical management down the org chart and said, you know what, let's cut all of the mental health therapists caseload by 70, by 25% so that they're only doing 75% of the work. That, that Those decisions just aren't happening, right? We're carrying 100% caseloads. More people are coming in, more people are coming in, more people are coming in. We're saying, take care of yourself, be careful. And by the way, you still have to make your caseloads and your clinical contact hours while managing a new uh, telehealth paradigm while managing an enormously stressful environmental situation. And by the way, you're feeling that stress also, <laughs> right? It's a, right? We're just set up to be burnt out and, and to be exhausted. And, and I think that it's probably, this is my, this is my feeling. I think that we're probably gonna do better by saying we're vulnerable to this because then we got a chance to fight it. Rather than just to say, I got this, I can do anything. I can handle my 25, 30 clients a week, plus more, plus manage all of this. If we don't say it, we expect that we're just gonna be fine. And that's when I think clinicians can crash, get exhausted, get depressed, get numb, get weary, get disconnected. Now, feeling disconnected over telehealth That's a double whammy. Burnout, when you're with clients in person, burnout can feel like disconnection. And if you're over telehealth, sitting in the same chair, not moving because your camera is right there, it's real easy to feel disconnected, especially if most of your sessions are now having similar content. Okay, so what do we do about burnout? You start with 
the basics that everybody talks about self-care and you got to get up and move and you have to have your exercise and you got to eat and you got to make sure you're sleeping. And all of those things are true. Of course, more than ever, we have to be so intentional about it. But I think the trap of our profession is that we stop there. And I think it's more important than ever that we mental health therapists, psychologists, social workers, counselors, marriage, marriage family therapists, whatever your title, substance abuse counselors, substance abuse counselors, I'm sorry. We have to be connected with one another. We have to debrief. We have to have case consultation. We have to have an outlet with one another from peer to peer, profession to prof professional to professional to say, oh my God, how am I going to get through this? What am I doing? This is really hard. What did I, I had this one client and he seemed really in a bad way, but the technology was bad and I couldn't quite get with him. All the way to the other side of the spectrum of I'm working with somebody where we were right in the heart of PTSD work. We were doing in-person prolonged exposure therapy. And now all of a sudden we're online. How do I manage that transfer? And we need to be able to connect with one another, it, whether it be clinical protocol, whether it be technology, whether it be support, whether it simply be, I'm exhausted too. This is hard. And we get to bounce that off of one another. And that is what gives us protection from burnout. I'm not alone. It's so easy for anybody to feel alone. And mental health therapists Behavioral health therapists are vulnerable to feeling alone and isolated as well. We can't be. If we are isolated in these times, we will, we will struggle to be present for our clients. We will struggle to be connected with our clients. We will start going through the motions. We will start to be burnt out, exhausted. And obviously that's going to, it harms the work, it harms the person. So I think that's why I, I'm, I started by saying, this is really hard. This is a hard time. And I think it's important to say that. It's not that I want to belabor that. It's that I think that's the pathway to saying, let's stay connected with one another. We, I don't think we have a choice. So Zoom and online meetings or whatever platform you're using for seeing clients, it might be something different than Zoom, though it can be. It's not the same thing as being in the room with a person. I could resist saying, oh my God, I can't do another online meeting. And I have to intentionally connect with other professionals in order to, pr to protect myself so that I can show up the next day and keep doing my job. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot to soak in, but really important advice. Are there any particular sort of outlets that you might recommend to other clinicians who are looking to find other providers to connect with? If you're in an outpatient unit, if you're in an outpatient department and you have a regular case consultation, this may already be happening. Let's continue to have the case consultation. We show each other's cases, talk about what's happening. If you're a private practitioner like me, so I have a local group of other private practitioners that you know, we consult with each other. It's our own little support group, right? It's not therapy. We're not giving each other therapy, but we are, it, it is a professional peer support group. And we have communicated about all sorts of different 
all sorts of the stuff that I've already mentioned, right? Frustrations with technology, sharing each other's updated informed consent, helping each other maybe through billing and insurance codes, procedures, regulations. It's, you know, like I said earlier, this 100% changeover to telehealth, there's just a lot of components to it. So that professional support group is with the people that I know, and we've had to intentionally create it and put it into our, and put it into our schedules so that we stay connected. I still think it's a tough time. I think it's going to be a tough time when we, as we go through this, this era, and as we come out of this era, I think that it's, it is likely to be that mental health providers are going to be in greater demand than ever. I think that there's going to be repercussions. There's going to be fallout from this grief, depression, anxiety, stress, relationship stress is coming. And we are the people that people are coming, that people go to, not exclusively, but we are one of the one of the groups that people go to. We're going to be in greater demand than ever. I think telehealth is never going to be put back in the box. Like we got it now. Our profession now will have this as a regular course of, of therapy. And it's changing every day, right? So we, we have no choice. We cannot be isolated as private practitioners, as therapists. We go behind a closed door. We can't stay there. We have to come out and find our way to connect with each other. Yeah, thanks for that sort of big picture look and and right down to like the individual level about what you're doing. I just feel like you said we're we're in this new era where things aren't going to necessarily go back to where they were and um in this constant process of adapting and and learning these new technologies and um making things work and coming to whatever the new normal is or will be and I I just want to take a step back and say thank you so much for sharing all that and and giving us that perspective because um, in the moment when all this stuff is happening, people aren't always looking forward at the bigger picture. And so it's really helpful to frame it that way. So where does that leave us now? I, I hope that we can end on a positive message and a positive note in the midst of this crisis. And um, wondering if you have any inspirational thoughts or just uh things, tips and tools to keep folks motivated, to keep folks connected and moving forward. If I could give inspiration on demand, I would love to have that gift. What I can say is one of the things that I think that we value, and when I say we, I'm talking about mental health professionals, mental health providers. I think that we value perseverance. There aren't often quick fixes. Sometimes there's people that need a a short session or a couple of sessions and they can solve a problem, work something out, and it's it's fabulous when that happens. But we are conditioned to think in the long haul. That's going to be tested a bit, but I don't think it's going to – I don't think – I think that test is going to be passed. We think that way anyway that we think about, okay, so there are some problems. This is hard stuff. There are hard problems in people's lives. There are some new hard problems in people's lives. But our our approach that perseveres is the 
thing that will help us. We will say, this is going to last a while, but naming it can take some of the power away from that. So it's going to last a while, but we can manage that. And I'm going to reach out to the people that support me. And I'm going to support the people that reach out to me. And that's the process, right? The process of being there for others is the thing that we do. It's the thing that we got into the profession for. And it's the thing that other people can offer us. Really believe in that. I really believe in we're going to do our best today. We're probably not going to solve it today. To think that we're going to solve it today is that can I can end the day feeling helpless and hopeless if I go into the day thinking that I'm going to solve it. I think we are uniquely qualified to saying, you know what, we don't have to solve it today, but I'm here for you. And by the way, I need some help with this too. And that is the thing. That's the thing that's going to give me the strength to get this six weeks from now, six months from now, 18 months from now, and continue forward. It's a simple value. And I guess what I'm talking about is this is a combination of perseverance. Like we can do this over the long haul and doing this together and doing this with my connections and with my people. It is the way I, when I've lost clients to suicide, it's some of the hardest, it's the hardest stuff in the world. I'll go through, oh my God, what did I miss? Did I forget something? I could have done better. I should have done better. And it's awful to be a a clinician survivor of the suicide loss. But what got me through those times was the same thing. It's who can I lean on, get through the next thing the next day, keep our eyes open. I think there's a powerful experience in there. There's going to be hard times and we're going to get through this in the long haul together. Wonderful. Thanks, Ted. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Great. Folks, uh, that's going to wind it down for today. We appreciate you all for tuning in and we welcome for sure now more than ever any comments, feedback, reactions to today's episode. We'd love to hear from you and I know Ted can be available as well for any questions specific to today's podcast. Uh, Ted, of course, on that note, we'd love to have you back to check back in um, on all the great work that you're doing and especially as a thought leader in the field. So. I really uh, hope we can get you back on the show again in the future. Thanks, Adam. I really appreciate it, and I'd love to anytime. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Please join us next time for more interviews on important work in suicide prevention, mental health, and well-being. Take care, everybody.